There are many issues that plague youth. The church acts as a safe haven. It provides a place where youth can come together to hear the Word of God. Upper Room Media presents to you this Youth Talk, delivered from Sydney, Australia. All right, so the theme of the camp, at least what they told me was, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And this is the third part of the series. I have no idea what you guys were talking about before, so forgive me if I've kind of missed the theme of it, but I'll try to do my best. They drank of that spiritual rock, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Who wrote those words? Who wrote those words? There's the verse reference there. Who wrote those words? Put your hand up. Just call out. First Corinthians. Who wrote First Corinthians? John? Peter? Paul. Yes, obviously, St. Paul. Beautiful. Well done, guys. We're starting perfectly. All right. What does it mean to drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock. What does it mean? To drink. Why do you drink? Why? What makes you want to drink? You're thirsty. Why are you thirsty? Yeah, because your body needs water. Yeah, cool. Where did that water come from that they drank? Where did it come from? Look at the verse. Where does it come from? Where did the water come from? Girls. Who's the spiritual rock? Good. Christ. So they drank and satisfied themselves because they were thirsty on Christ. What have you been drinking? All right. There are two quotes that I'm going to read out to you that I want you just to keep in the back of your minds as we go on. I considered the word of the Creator and likened it to the rock that marched with the people in the Israel in the wilderness. Because St. Paul is referring to something that happened in the Old Testament. All right. It was not from the reservoir of water contained within it, so within the rock, that it poured forth for them glorious streams. There was no water in the rock, yet oceans sprang forth from it. Just so did the word fashion create things out of nothing. What's he trying to say here? Look how many times I've put in bold, there was not, there wasn't some hidden water inside the rock. There wasn't some hidden reservoir, yet water came out. Just as God creates out of nothing. What does it tell you? What does it tell you? I read another verse. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither, neither let it be afraid. What are those two quotes trying to tell us? What is the water that we're drinking? Is it of this world? Yes, no. You've got to give me some facial expression skills, something. It's cute how you guys have separated boys and girls as well. Give me some facial expression. Is it water of this world? Or is it of another world? Is it supernatural? Right? So what do you notice? What we are being satisfied on is something that is not of this world. In the Psalms, King David says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust. What does he mean, the Lord is my rock? Why do they keep saying the Lord is my rock? Yeah. What does that mean? When Christ himself says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What's a cornerstone? Can you guys see that picture in the back? Sorry, your slides are a bit this way. But the cornerstone is this big block 
Yeah. Back then, when they weren't that good at developing foundations and they couldn't have concrete piers and couldn't do whatever else they need to do and, and do nice, solid foundations, they would get a massive rock, a really heavy rock, put it in the corner, hence cornerstone, and then they would build around it and they would anchor the entire building. Everything would take its foundation from it. I.e., they drank from that spiritual rock. They found their foundation, their basis in Him. The thing that I derive my peace from, my satisfaction from, my contentment from, is what makes me stable, is what makes me unshaken. If I have a sure foundation, just like a house, just like a building, it can't, I can't be moved. But if my foundation is not solid, is not founded on something which is not of this world, then I will be shaken. And so then let me ask you all, and answer in your hearts, if you're honest, are you constantly disturbed? Are you constantly disturbed? Do things shake you? You fail an exam. You smile at a girl, she doesn't smile back. You make eyes with a boy, he doesn't look at you. Yeah? You uh, go for a job and you don't get that job. You want to buy a car and you miss out on the car. Whatever it may be. How does that affect you? How does that affect you? Next slide. So what have you been drinking? Are you actually satisfied? Because if you're satisfied, you would not be shaken. Your foundation would be on something very deep, very solid. But if I look at us and myself first, we are constantly shaken. So are we actually satisfied or are we just drinking? There's a difference, right? You can keep drinking because you're thirsty and drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking all kinds of things. Drinking pleasure, drinking wealth, drinking ambition, drinking study, drinking your career. But you're still shaken. Or are you satisfied? And if you're not satisfied and you're shaken, why? Why? And so whether I'm shaken or not by the things that happen in life is actually the litmus test. It's the thing that proves what my foundation is. It all depends on what we're drinking. So, next slide. So we're going to talk very quickly about some, some definitions. We're going to look at some recent studies on contentment and happiness, right? Because people think that they're happy and content when they take things of the world and they drink of the world. We're going to look at what is contentment, and then I might skip the stuff on Ecclesiastes, and then how to be founded and content in Christ the rock. So are you actually satisfied? Next slide, please. Some definitions. Happiness. What is happiness? What is happiness? Guys, just say something. Say something. Don't be shy or something. I'm going to pointing. What is happiness? What is happiness? <laughs> Very good. Very good. A positive emotion that is deeper than a good temporary mood. Cool. It includes some positive emotions like joy, peace, sense of involvement, enthusiasm in life. All right. And there's three fundamental elements to it. One, a positive emotional state. Right. I'm not negative. Widespread and positive social relationships with people around me. And the individual interprets everyday events with optimism. Yeah? What is contentment? What is contentment? Good. The state of being satisfied. What do you notice the difference is? Yeah. Happiness is an emotional state which is almost short term. Not temporary, but short term. Contentment is more long term. Yeah? It becomes something that it's my kind of steady state, my steady state. 
What's really interesting are studies on happiness. Next slide, please. I read almost solely in the first four centuries of Christianity, right? But every now and then, probably once a quarter, I go to the New York bestseller and I look at the top three, four books that everyone's reading and I buy them and I read them. Yeah? And they are inevitably rubbish, all right? Because they're written for the common denominator of humanity, which is not the best, all right? And so they can write all kinds of rubbish and people soak it up. And you can see this Oprah's book club, right? Anyone that listens to Oprah, there's something wrong, right? There's something wrong. But the whole world's listening to it. This is the whole world's listening to it. And so every now and then I'll look at some positive psychology books and whatever else. And sometimes there's some useful things. But the one thing that is common about all of these books, they are all geared to making us happy. Pursuit of happiness. How to be a happy person. How to make friends. How to do this. As if... You know, this is what humanity is chasing, happiness. So let's look at some proper studies on happiness. Happiness is strongly inherited. Yeah? You get it by nature, you get it by nurture. You get it from your family and you get it genetically. There's something very strong in there. But your environment, what happens in life, actually doesn't affect happiness as much as you'd expect. So money. There's a guy called Ed Diner, who's a psychologist, did multiple studies on this. He says, wealth only adds happiness when you click over from that point about worrying about food and shelter every day. All right? So if you're living in poverty and you're starving, if you don't, have, you, got a, you, you don't have a roof over your head and you haven't got clothes, then money will make you happier when you get it. There's no doubt about it. But once you've clicked over and you have a house or a unit, doesn't matter how big it is, doesn't matter how nice it is, doesn't matter how much more money you have, once you are free of those basic needs, there is very little difference in happiness when you have more money. Which is really strange, right? Because our whole lives is spent trying to build, trying to get more money, trying to do this. It actually doesn't change your level of happiness, and I'll explain why later. Something called the adaptation principle. But happy people grow richer. Why? Because they're better colleagues, they're more popular at work. They work harder because they have a positive emotional state and they're generally a bit more optimistic. They invest in their future because they think there's hope for them. And so they generally do better in life. Yeah. And you'll see this in your own friendship groups. Yeah. If you're happy, people want to work with you. They want to invest with you. Things get better. Age. People think you're happier when you're younger. Actually, the opposite. Older people are often happier than younger people. Because yeah. even though they get health problems or whatever else, they adapt to them. Looks. If I was only beautiful and had lovely long hair and could tie it up and would look awesome, then I'd be such a happier priest. Rubbish. Looks makes absolutely no difference to how happy you are. With one minor kind of caveat, that if there is something in your looks that is disturbing, so for example, somebody has, and again, no comments on the shapes of noses, I love big noses, but if someone has an extravagant Pinocchio nose, and they think about that every single morning, and that's all they see, then yes, correcting that nose, which is causing an anxiety, will make them happier. But going from a 7 out of 10 to a 10 out of 10, I'm sorry guys, it's not going to make you happier. It's not going to make you happier. Good marriages, next slide. Good marriages are strongly associated with happiness. All right? And that's partly related to being happy actually causes good marriages. All right? Because if I'm happy, I'm attractive. Right? You're not attracted to someone that's and they're miserable all day and they're crying all day. 
right? But someone who is smiling becomes much more attractive. For those of you that are dating, just think back to the people that you're dating. When they're smiling, how much more attractive they are to you. When they're frowning in your face, how ugly they look to you. The problem is, if you have a wife that even when she's frowning at you, she still looks pretty, that's dangerous because she gets away in everything. And I'm not making any personal comments about my wife, but she gets away with murder. All right? But people with fewer social constraints are more likely to suicide. So when you're not married, when you don't have relationships, then it actually does decrease your happiness. Because strong social bonds improve our immunity, make us happier, make us better even in our own health. Now, trying too hard to find happiness often has the opposite effect and leads you to be overly selfish. So if you're spending every day trying to be happy, that's actually going to make you more unhappy. Right? So if you're reading How to Be Happy and The Pursuit of Happiness and all these self-help books, chances are you're going to become less happy than them. All right? There is also a linear relationship between religious involvement and happiness. So if you're religious, generally you're happier. And that, from a very kind of physical, material level, earthly level, has to do with our social ties. That when you're at church, like right now, you've got a community, you've got friends. You're connected to something beyond yourself and that makes us happier. But that's from a purely psychological perspective. Spiritually, there's something that happens much deeper than that. So, next slide, please. There is one constant and strong predictor of happiness, however, in every single study on happiness. Contentment. If you can learn to be content, you'll be happier. Beyond good marriages, beyond good looks, beyond money, beyond genetics... If you can learn to be content, then you can be happy. It is the only thing that buys happiness, literally. So, next slide. So why don't circumstances change our happiness as much as we'd expect? I win the lotto. Why aren't I happy? Why aren't I happy? I go buy that car I've been dreaming of. Why doesn't it make me happier? Because of something called adaptation principle. The human mind, when you study it, is sensitive to changes in conditions. Right? So if I'm living in poverty and then I go to wealth, then that creates exhilaration in me, happiness, joy, euphoria, dopamine here. All right? But then something happens. It's just a relative change. Once I'm in that change, then I adapt. So if I have no money and then have lots of money, that absolute change doesn't make me happier. It's just the change that makes me a little bit happier. That's why lottery winners, on average, return to baseline of happiness, often get worse, actually. We habituate, we accommodate to whatever level I'm on. If I've got $100 in my bank account, I'm just going to be as happy. Yes, you put a million dollars in there, I'm going to be much happier for a few weeks, month, two months. But eventually, there's a million dollars in my account, I get used to that, I adapt to it, and I'm just as happy. I go back to wherever my state is. And this is not a modern discovery. There's a guy called Adam Smith in 1759 who said this. In every permanent situation where there is no expectation of change, so I'm living in poverty, I got a million dollars, I inherited ten million dollars, the mind of every man in a longer or shorter time returns to its natural and usual state of tranquility. In prosperity, so after doing well, after a certain time it falls back to that state. In adversity, after a certain time it rises up to it. Okay. So if there is no expectation of change, so I'm poor, and I'm not expecting to change from that, my happiness adapts. If I've got $50 million, and there's no expectation that I'm going to lose that $50 million, then I'm just as happy. 
static. It doesn't change me. It doesn't change me. The only problem is if there's an expectation of change. Yeah? And that's what you call something that feeds into dopamine addiction. Right? That's why I'm saying if you chase happiness, you'll often be less happy. Because when you're chasing happiness, you're chasing change. You're chasing change. Next slide, please. So right now, there's actually a modern disease. Because think about it. How many times do you change your phone? Annually? Every two years? Biannually? How often do you change your car? You guys are young. But every three, four years, you sell it off and replace it and do this and do that. Yeah? What is happening? There is a constant expectation of change. Every social media bombardment that you see is about change. New clothes, new hair, new style, new trends. What's the kitchen for 2024? What's the best car? What's the best shoes? Even shoes. People don't even wear their shoes out anymore. We change them so often. All right? So if there's a constant expectation of change, I actually get addicted to change. Do you guys know what dopamine is? Yeah? Dopamine is this neurotransmitter that people think is when you take drugs or something goes really well, that you get this hit, right? And so you take some cocaine, which you should never do, and you get this dopamine hit. You gamble, you get this dopamine hit. You are intimate with someone, you get a dopamine hit. You win a million dollars, you get a dopamine hit. You do something pleasurable, you get dopamine. That's not what it is. Dopamine actually gets released in anticipation. It's the chase. Right? It's why when back in the day and people used to use heroin, they used to call it chasing the dragon. Because there was a chase. There was anticipation. Right? With intimacy even, the, the attraction and the hit doesn't come from the end moment. It comes from the chase. Right? There's a pleasure of anticipating and wanting it. And that's why if you study even yourself and look at your own patterns of sin and your own patterns of addiction, which we all have to certain degrees, You'll notice there's an excitement in the anticipation. It's why you often find that guys will be interested in girls and they're chasing them, but once they have them, they get bored. Right? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And so we literally become addicted to wanting something else, to changing. So we're never satisfied with what we have and what we are. So next slide. So again, what are you drinking? Because if circumstances changing doesn't actually make me happier, doesn't make me more content, if I dated that guy, I don't date that guy, if I get that money, I don't get that money, if I get that job, I don't get that job, it doesn't make me happier or more content. And if I'm constantly expecting change or chasing change, then I become a dopamine addict. I become addicted to change. So the more we chase happiness, the less content and therefore the less happy I become. I.e., the more you drink the wrong stuff, the thirstier you get. Have you guys ever drank seawater? You ever been like when you're young? Did you guys do this? I, I did it. When I was like really thirsty and I couldn't find the water, I thought, you know what? Surely I should drink something from the ocean. And I remember dad saying to me, it's just going to make you thirsty. I'm going to give you whatever. And so you drink a little bit of seawater. Do you know what happens when you drink seawater? Yeah. Do you know what happens? Seawater has four times the salt concentration of your bodily fluids. Okay? So your body can't handle that level of salt. So it needs water to dilute it, but it can't. So it tries to dump it and get rid of it. How do you dump salt? You pee it out. 
right? You pee it out. And so you dehydrate yourself. You're drinking cell water, thinking it's going to satisfy, satisfy your thirst. In actual fact, it makes you thirstier, and it gets rid of whatever water you have in your body. That is exactly what happens when you drink not from the spiritual rock. You keep drinking of the world, the more you drink of it, it just makes you thirstier. If you think you're going to get your satisfaction from money, from your career, from your ambition, from your wealth, from your relationships even, even from your study, all it's going to do is make you thirstier. It's going to dehydrate you. So what are you drinking? Next slide, please. There was a guy called Daniel, Daniel, Dr. Daniel Kodaro who did a study of this remote group of nomads that were living in the Himalayas in eastern Bhutan. And he showed these villagers who didn't speak English Dozens of facial and, and um, vocal expressions, like photos of people doing things, all kinds of weird faces. And they recognized almost all of the emotions. But then they saw one emotion on a face and they stopped. And they stopped and they had to get a translator to, so they could explain. And they said to him this In our culture, this emotion, contentment, is very special. It is the highest achievement of human well being. And it is what the greatest enlightened masters have been writing about for thousands of years. It's hard to translate exactly, but the closest word for them was chokshai, which is a very deep and spiritual word that means the knowledge of enough. It basically means that right here, right now, everything is perfect as it is, regardless of what you are experiencing on the outside. The knowledge of enough. For them, that was the highest thing. So what is contentment? Next Contentment comes from the Latin word contentus. It means something that is held together or intact or whole. And it was originally used to describe containers. Something that doesn't need something outside it, but can contain its own thing. Somebody who feels complete, with no desires beyond themselves. But the opposite of contentment is not what you think. Yeah? It's probably actually anxiety and worry. A lack of contentness. A constant wanting of change. And I would say, at its kind of worst, it's addiction. Yeah? It's an irritability with what I have. What I have is not enough. I need more. I need something different. I need some change. Yeah? And so there are many effects that happen if we are not content. Whereas when we are happy or content, there actually has the opposite effect. So people that are happy or content, generally, unsurprisingly, are more healthy. They have a lower heart rate, they have lower blood pressure, they've got increased immunity, they've got decreased stress, um, they release less stress hormone, they have fewer aches and pains. In general, they have longer lifespans. Right? So even something is happening to the body if I'm content. So, and this is what I really want to ask. Is, next slide says, is then, if contentment leads to happiness, then is God and religion just a means to being content? Is me following God purely for the purpose that I can be happy? So that I can sleep better at night? So that I can have lower blood pressure? If religion makes us more content, which makes us experience more happiness, is that what we're chasing? Is that what we're chasing? What do you guys think? No. In Ecclesiastes, the, the, the wisdom of the prophet of Solomon who writes that is he's saying that even trying to take contentment from things is part of the problem. Even trying to be content is part of the problem. Because human contentment is just the taste of something. 
And I read out one passage. I wasn't going to go through it. Do we have how much time do I have? Yeah. I made my works great. I built myself houses. So this is Solomon, who's gathered possessions, who has everything. And listen to what he has. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. Now this is at the time when if you own a tiny little shack and work on somebody else's land, you're doing pretty well for yourself. All right. I built myself houses, I planted myself vineyards, I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants. I had servants born in my house, so I had generations of servants. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all those who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and had the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. He even, before there was Spotify, had his own bands, just playing music for him. So I became great and excelled more than all those who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. So he even acquired wisdom, not just material things. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, and from my heart rejoiced in all my, in my labor. And this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and all the labor which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and a grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. So he's saying, I had everything. Not just physical property, not just my own personal Spotify. I had even wisdom, knowledge. And it was a grasping in the wind. Why? He says it's a vanity of vanities. All is futile. He says it's vapor. It's futile. It's insubstantial. Because for him, everything, even things that are good, like relationships, like your friends, like your partners, like your house, like your singers, like your wisdom, like your knowledge, like your careers, is vapor without God. And then he says, there is a time for everything under the sun. The things of life are not by any means meaningless, although they can be. They take their meaning from the rock. Wellness and illness find their meaning in God, the rock. Everything we do before him is for him, the rock. And that means if I try to take satisfaction, meaning, contentment even, from the world, then it's vanity, it's vapor, it disappears. Even contentment, even being satisfied with what I have, if that becomes a thing in itself, then it's not enough. But if I take my meaning from God, then even the things of the world become more than vapor, they become meaningful. Even the mundane things, the useless things, become sacred and meaningful. So the problem is not that there are these things in the world. It's not that you're drinking things of the world. It's that you're trying to take your satisfaction from these things in the world. Even being content. Anxiety, worry, addiction, they tie us to the things of the world. And there are means. We confuse things for the rock. There was this incredible priest by the name of Father Demetrius Danilo, who was this Romanian priest, and he was imprisoned during communism and suffered incredible things in, in the world. So he knew a thing or two about being worried for tomorrow. Yeah? When you live every day thinking you're going to die tomorrow, you get a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of worry. He wrote this. He said, man spends most of his life waiting for and seeking pleasure in the fear of the present and future pain. We run to pleasure because we want to escape pain. This is the fruit of the passions and unceasing manifestation of the passions in us. These periods of waiting and of fear produce care in us. But even in the moments when we do no longer have the actual consciousness 
that we are waiting for pleasure or expecting pain. We work for the capacity of pleasure and for the avoidance of unspecified future pain. We spend our entire lives either worrying about future pain or worrying about trying to get some kind of pleasure. Or we spend our entire lives trying to avoid that particular pleasure. That's what we do. That's what we do. And so then we become so afraid. We become so addicted to the things of the world, trying to secure our pleasure, trying to avoid our pain. And all of it has with tomorrow. And I'll kind of wrap up here a little bit more. So how then do we become content? How then do we become content? Next slide, please. The key is to live today and drink today. When you drink water and you're thirsty, do you say, tomorrow I'm going to drink some water to satisfy my thirst today? Is that what you say? Yeah? I know you definitely don't because I've seen this younger generation. You guys can't even survive with hunger for five minutes. You know? I have like people that confess with me and I tell them, can you try to abstain? Just like delay 15 minutes, half an hour. They go, oh, but I can't do it. I can't do it. I wake up as soon as my eyes open, I need to eat. I go, okay, eat. What can I do for you? What can I do for you? And so then if I said to you, satisfy your thirst tomorrow, who would do that? When you're thirsty, you drink now. And so the key then to being content is to drink now, to live in the present. You know, a good friend of mine who's passed away now, um, that I used to surf with, he would go to his, all of his doctor's appointments with his wives. And he said to me that whenever he would see his um, oncologist, he would always avoid the question of how long he had to live. He didn't want to know. He didn't want to know. And then one day, and he told his wife, don't ever ask about how long. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And then one day, his wife couldn't take it because he was looking very unwell. And so she asked the oncologist, how long does he have left? And he goes, this was the first time we had a fight. He goes, I was furious. I was so upset. And I said to him, why were you so upset by that? And these were his words. Because I don't want to know. I just want to live each day in God's love. He didn't want to know. Because he doesn't want to have six months left. He doesn't want to have got five years left. He wants to simply live with God now. To drink now. Not tomorrow. Now. And when he said that, next slide please. He reminded me of Abu Nubashwai Ken who died of spinal cancer in 1979. He used to speak of cancer as this disease of paradise. Are you guys familiar with that? He'd often talk about the disease of paradise. And people think that he was talking about um, that he had this chance to prepare for paradise. It's not true. It's not true at all. What he meant was it wasn't a preparation for death. By having that disease, he was able to learn to live each day. He learned how to live with God and others today. Because when I think I'm dying, I live today. I drink today. When I'm thirsty, I drink today. I spend time in God's presence today. In the case of my friend, it forced him how to live each day without any thought of tomorrow. He had no anxiety, and I've never seen anything like it in my life. Somebody who didn't know how long, for five years, he was going to die, and every day, full of joy. Full of joy. Looking around the ocean, every time he's in the ocean, full of wonder, full of peace. Every person he met, never judging, always full of love. So how do we become content when we learn to live today? When I learn to maximally love those around me today? When I experience the mercy of God today? When I drink from Him today? When I'm merciful to others today because He was merciful to me? Consider, when you are comforting somebody, yeah, or you are com someone's comforting you, do they comfort you tomorrow? No, they come for you in the moment of your agony. Right? That is how we drink. 
that is how we drink. And I'll skip the next slides. So if you go to the next slide, please. So trying to take contentment from things is the problem. Human contentment is a taste of something. Like everything else, there can be contentment from below and there can be contentment from above. Yeah? Contentment itself can become an idolatry. It can become my rock that I try to drink from and I can try to chase it. But it's a taste. It's something good that was put in us to taste. There is only one rock. And that is what St. Paul is trying to say to them. There is only one person you can drink from that can give you water that is not of this world. As he said to the Samaritan woman, there is only one water which is living water, that after you drink it, you don't need to drink again. So who is our rock? Christ. And I'll repeat the words that I began with. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In the world, there's going to be change. There's going to be change of circumstance. There's going to be tribulation. But in me, there is peace. In me, there is peace. And I'll just end perhaps with, with a quote from St. Augustine, who said that when he was talking about his life, so you guys know the story of St. Augustine and his confessions, yeah? So he lived a very colourful life, if you don't know that. Um, multiple women, multiple children with other women, um, had a mistress. Um, even when he turned to God, would say to God, just give me one more night of pleasure, and then after I finish that one more night of pleasure, I'll come back to you. All right? And he said, after this long life of sin, he said, I had my back to the light and my face to the things that were enlightened. I was seeing beautiful women. I was seeing wisdom. I was seeing knowledge. I was seeing academic pursuits. I was seeing all of these things. And it's whence my face, which I had discerned the things enlightened itself was not enlightened. He said, I was sitting there with my back to the sun. And the sun was shining up all these things in the world. Women, pleasure, wisdom, ambition, career and everything else. And I could see them. And yet, I never turned around to face the actual source of light. I never faced the actual source of light. And that is what we do. We try to drink of the things of the world, not realizing that all these things of the world are there to point us to Him. That we only see them because of His light that shines on them and reflects onto us. And so if I take my contentment from anything besides Him, if I put my foundation on anything besides Him, I will be shaken. Anything. And so I'll probably end there because I've gone for way too long. But I just want really to make that very, very, very clear. What you are drinking affects you. It'll either make you more thirsty, more dehydrated, more unsettled. Or if you are drinking Christ, you become over life more unshaken, more stable, more founded more at peace until ultimately you're in complete union with him. Glory be to God for a moment. Thank you guys. Any questions at all? Yeah, beautiful. So there is nothing wrong with healthy ambition. There is nothing wrong with a career. There is nothing wrong with getting married. I strongly recommend it. There is nothing wrong with building a house. There is nothing wrong with buying a car. There is nothing wrong with having nice shoes. Nothing wrong. But if my satisfaction comes with those things, I will be miserable. Many years ago, when I was a young medical student, I was with Father Paul, who was also a medical student with me. And we were at RPA, 
and we were in the middle of some surgery. We were assisting, which means we were basically doing nothing because we are medical students. And we were sitting there bored. I was going like this, trying to get the mask off my face because my face was itchy the whole time. And I wasn't really concentrating on what was happening. And then in the middle of the surgery, the surgeon just stopped. And he was the head of um, urology, which is a type of you know, bladder and ureters and those kind of things. And he was the head of the whole of RPA in that particular surgery. And then he stopped and he goes, you know what, guys? <coughs> My whole life, I chased this. And we both then looked at him. We didn't know why he started talking about it. We didn't know why he's talking to us, you know. And so then he goes, I chased this. And when I was young and I was your age and I was a medical student, I wanted to be the best of the best. I wanted to be the best surgeon and the head of the best surgeon of the best hospital in Australia. And now I'm here. And I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I've hardly seen my kids for the last 20 years. You know, I've chased and I've chased and I've got everything and I'm happy and I love it, but what now? What now? And so Father Paul and I were sitting there, we weren't priests, we were just medical students, and we were like, this guy's got problems. Right? <laughs> He's wasted a lot of time. But it was actually a major wake-up call. And there is nothing wrong with being an incredible surgeon. It's a beautiful thing. There can be great service to humanity. But if that is the source of your contentment, is that is the source of your foundation, it's vapor. It goes. Yeah. I'll tell you an opposite story. There was another surgeon, um, I won't mention his name, um, an Australian gentleman, who I, went, I was sitting with him and my, my son was seeing him and he said to me, he goes, you know, I spent the first half of my career um, building myself, building my career, building my practice and doing all these other things. Now I've got another 15 years left of my career and I'm trying to think how I can spend those 15 years serving humanity. And so what he would do is he would go and work for the army and he'd go to Afghanistan or whatever else on, on a cruise ship, on a navy ship, whatever they call them. And they'd give him a whole operating suite on there with multiple operating theaters. And he goes, but no one was fighting. No one was at war. He goes, so I was using Australian government resources to, op to operate on young children. You know, kids that had problems that could never afford medical care, never surgery. We would just stay there for three months and operate on all these kids and save all these kids. And he goes, and now I'm starting to think that's what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. Yeah. Beautiful. His skill set, everything he has, but it's founded on something else. And I said to him, why? Why are you doing that? And he goes, you're a religious man. You know you're God. I'm the same as you. You know, he was a very faithful man. Yeah. And so it depends what I'm taking my contentment for. There are people, my own mother, for example, she worked in a business, yeah, news agency, doing meaningless work. A highly intelligent woman, but doing meaningless, relatively meaningless work, right? Not saving people, not doing anything dramatic. And yet, every day, there would be lines of women sitting there and they're just whispering to her. And I go, what are you doing? What are you doing? And every day, there's, this is in Lakemba, right? It's a highly Islamic area. There's a whole section of the shop of icons and crosses, and every day it's the fastest selling thing. What is she doing? Selling newspapers? And yet, somehow, it becomes founded on something deeper. Yeah? So there is nothing wrong with ambition. There is nothing wrong with these things. But if my eyes are on these things, and I think that's what my direction is, and I forget the only reason I can see that thing is because of the light that is shining on them and that I'm called to turn my face to the light that is the source. 
then there's no point. It's vapor. It means nothing. Even my relationships, even my friendships, yeah? everything we do has to point us back to Him. These things were created, they were given to us for Him to move us back to Him. Any other questions? Finally, um, how can we practically stop rejecting like how contentment may be in worldly things? Yeah, I really believe the first thing is to live today, is that my focus is today. My focus is not tomorrow. Yeah? If I live like Abu Nabashokim, like my friend that passed away, if I live every day in today, what happens? I'm sitting there and a girl frustrates me. And did you hear what she said? No, 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 no. Do I hold a grudge if I live today and I may not live tomorrow? No, there's no time for grudges. I make excuses, I move on, I make peace. If I'm sitting there and somebody hurts me, I don't hold that hurt because I haven't got time to hold that hurt. I maximally love every single person around me. I think about people maximally. I haven't got time to ask about that person tomorrow. I'm going to ask about them today. I'm going to check on them today. I'm going to smile and be happy and lift people up today. I'm not going to wait till tomorrow. I've got one day. I've got one day to lift people up. I've got one day to live maximally. Recently, there was a young man that passed away. And then um, somebody else who was my age looked at me and said to me, like, doesn't this just depress you? Like, what are we wasting all of our time here doing? You know, shouldn't we just sell everything, sell our businesses, sell this, sell that, and just go into monasteries and wait till we die? And I said, no, the opposite. This means that we need to love and live maximally today. It means that I perform my career maximally today. It means that when I'm in my job with my colleagues, I love them and lift them up maximally today. It means that my patients, my clients, my customers, I treat them with love maximally today. When I do that, then all of a sudden I'm in the presence of God because I'm living today. When I pray, I'm not praying for tomorrow. I'm living today. I'm in contact with Him today. It's kind of like relationships. You can't build relationships in the future. You build them now. You build them with a conversation now. You build them with a smile now. You build them with a hug now. You build them with comfort now. And so the way that we move beyond that to be content is I don't start to think about tomorrow too much. I start to focus much more on living today. Yeah? And that's the words of Christ himself. You know? Do not worry about tomorrow. Sufficient is the day's problems. Any other questions? Andrew. Yeah, perhaps one simple thing to do is, is to say that, literally. Say that. When you wake up in the morning, what do you guys do? So I'm going to guarantee, I'm going to put the number at 98% to 99%. But the first thing you do when you wake up and your eyes open is you grab your phone. Does anyone here not do that? Yeah, that's right. You can be honest. One person. All right, good. We've got two. Well done. Well done. All right. Maybe 2%. But the majority of us do that. Yeah. Imagine then that as soon as I open my eyes, the first thing I do is close my eyes or do the sign of the cross and say to my Lord, my Lord, let me live for you today. Let me encounter you today. Let me experience you today so that I can show your love to people today. 
Can you imagine how much that would transform your day? Just by that direction. Just by that direction. And that means that we have to be radical. It has to be intentional. You can't just make your way through this. It has to be very intentional to live today for God. To be satisfied in Him today means that I have to be very intentional about the ways that I do things. And again, I'm not saying don't build your careers. I'm not saying don't invest in your futures. I'm not. These are beautiful things. But if that's what you're chasing, and that's all you're chasing, then that's where you're going to end up being. Drinking more and more and more of this water that makes you thirsty. Whereas if you drink of the spiritual rock, you drink of Christ today, and you're intentional about it, then that's transformative. That's the only difference. That's the only difference. Recently I came across a quote by, by a Catholic author who was saying that the, the grace of God that makes saints is simply that they turn their faces to him every moment. That's it. That's the difference in saints and us. They're constantly turning their face to him. Whereas we're constantly turning our faces away from him at things. Yeah? But it should be the other way around. I see the thing, it turns me back to him. I see money, it turns me back to him. I see possessions, it turns me back to him. I see relationships, I turn it back to him. I see I've achieved in my career, it turns me back to him. Not the opposite. Not the opposite. Does that, does that answer all? Yeah. Any other questions, guys? Go for it, Jim. Uh, sorry, when you were talking about like how change gives us a sense of happiness because like we enjoy change and consideration and stuff. But like, I, I sometimes think about like what do you think works better in your spiritual life? You're kind of skip, like you're in that stage where you're like, I want to get close to God, but I don't want to get too close in case it changes my life. Because, like, it comes stage, at a cost, you mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. You also have like you, you like social media or like say what to sit here, sexual habits, mm. it's a great mm. change in the silence. Yeah. So what's the difference between that change? Like why do you not like that change? Why do you still do that change? Yeah, excellent. So again, the difference is one is a constant change, like changing my shoes and I need to keep changing it. The other one is a spiritual change, which is not actually constant change. It's a constant turning back to Him. He's the one constant. Yeah? And so I'm constantly moving back to Him. That's the spiritual change. But you're very right. It comes at a cost. Yeah? I'll tell you, there was a, a, a funny story. Um, I had a lady come to me for confession. She's not... Um, wasn't from a Coptic Orthodox background, um, but then started attending for a long time. She was married to someone who was Coptic Orthodox. And she was attending another parish, and she didn't understand half the things that were going on because it was in a different language. And she said, but I used to do it for my husband, and I did it very faithfully. Ten years. Every Sunday, serving in Sunday school, doing everything. And she goes, and no matter what the sermon was, I would just sit there with a smile on my face, and it just goes over my head. Not listening, this is for somebody else, I'm just doing this for my husband. So she goes, um... But then I've been attending here, and I can understand things, and I understand every word. She goes, and I am furious at you. I go, me, what did I do? And she goes, she goes, what did you do? She goes, this church that I attend now, I hear things. I hear sermons. Forgiveness. I have to forgive my sister-in-law. I hear things about, I can't do this. So now I have to think about what I'm watching, and what I'm watching on Netflix. She goes, I can't swear, because I hear about keeping my mouth pure. So I have to stop swearing. She goes, so I'm angry at you. I never had to do these things before. I was living a very happy life before I had to do these things. She was making a joke. Right? But what she was saying is it came at a price. When she started to listen, when she started to change, it meant that all of a sudden she had to start forgiving. She had to stop being kinder to people. She had to let go of hurts. Yeah? 
That's a good thing. But that's not the constant kind of change that I'm talking about. That's just a turning back to Christ, which is a beautiful thing. The other changes that I'm talking about are the constant need for change, the constant need for change in my clothes, my shoes, my hairstyle, whatever it may be, things that I become addicted to. Because it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Yeah. A little bit of a tiny little bit of a price. Yeah. A little bit of a sacrifice. But to get the most incredible thing. The water that never makes you thirsty. Yeah. And there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. It's incomparable. The infinite love of God and the infinite experience of his mercy and the peace that he brings to my heart, nothing in this life can ever compare to it. And that's why you find that the saints give up everything for you. Yeah. And we all have tastes of that. That moment when maybe after deep spirituality in Pascha, um, after time of spending time, that my heart is just at peace with you. Yeah? That I feel a joy in my heart that I don't get from social media, that I don't get from relationships, that I don't get from lust, that I don't get from desires, but a joy that fills my heart that I know is not of this world, that I know is beyond. And I taste it for a moment, for a few minutes, for a, a few hours. There's nothing that compares that in this life. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so, how you get over it? Experience it. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, and I'll probably end here because I don't want to bore you guys for too long. It's like a guy that's dating, before he dates a girl, right? And you walk in Bondi. All right? And as you're walking, you're walking on the Cornish, the nice path of the Esplanade on the water. And as you're walking there, you see all these beautiful women. Not that I would, but you guys shouldn't either. And as you're walking there, all these scantily clad women, and your eyes keep going everywhere, right? And you've got like a rubber neck, and you're constantly looking at everything you can see, right? And then I say to you, stop looking at those girls. Yeah. Then, fast forward a year, you meet this beautiful girl, and you're holding her hand, and you're walking on the same Cornish, the same Esplanade. Are you as inclined to look at those girls? You shouldn't be. But are you as inclined? No. Why? Because something more beautiful is standing right next to you. Right? And so these things seem like sacrifices until I experience something that is far more attractive. That's why St. Isaac the Syrian says, there is a way to fight against sin. You can sit on the floor and battle each one of your sins one by one. Sometimes you succeed, sometimes you fail. He goes, but there is a far greater way. Lift your eyes to heaven. Lift your eyes to the one whose beauty is far more attractive than everything else around you. The sins will still be there. The sacrifices will still be there, but they don't affect you as much because I'm attracted to something far more beautiful. Yeah. And so all of it is really a matter of attraction. Yeah. Any other questions, guys? Very good. No? Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me with you. God bless this beautiful camp. God bless your servants and your priests. And glory be to God. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.